Thank you. I'm tempted to take off my shoes. Yeah. All right. All right. Here we go. A counselor once told me if you're feeling anxious, you should take off your shoes because you'll feel more grounded. So maybe we'll see if this helps. Uh, thank you, Grant. It's, it's an honor to be invited here. It's an honor, especially as an alumnus, uh, and I also admit that it's a bit strange. It feels like I've moved both backwards and forwards in time in the same movement. I have a lot of memories of sitting there. There. And I can recall being bored in a number of those memories and relatively indifferent in a lot of others and inspired in a select few. And for the bored and indifferent times, I think the majority of that was my fault. But not anymore, but a decade ago, we had a few duds. So <laughs> uh, having said that, I'm not here to entertain you. And I'm not even here to discuss the merits or lack thereof of mandatory chapel attendance. I am here to give an account of what I think I'm doing as a professor of biblical studies in this place. And I'd like to begin that account by reading from the opening of a good novel called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Thank you. So you get an A. You get an A. Uh, bear with me. This is a little bit long. Some years ago, there was in the city of York a society of magicians. They met upon the third Wednesday of every month and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of English magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say they had never harmed anyone by magic nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. But with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. A great magician has said of his profession that its practitioners must pound and rack their brains to make the least learning go in, but quarreling always comes very naturally to them. And the York magicians had proved the truth of this for a number of years. In the autumn of 1806, they received an addition in a gentleman called John Segundus. At the first meeting that he attended, Mr. Segundus rose and addressed the society. He began by complimenting the gentlemen upon their distinguished history. He listed the many celebrated magicians and historians that had at one time or another belonged to the York Society. He hinted that it had been no small inducement to him in coming to York to know of the existence of such a society. Northern magicians, he reminded his audience, had always been better respected than southern ones. Mr. Segundus said that he had studied magic for many years and knew the histories of all the great magicians of long ago. He read the new publications upon the subject and had even made a modest, modest contribution to their number. But recently, he had begun to wonder why the great feats of magic that he read about remained on the pages of his books and were no longer seen in the street or written about in the newspaper. Mr. Segundus wished to know, he said, why modern magicians were unable to work the magic they wrote about. In short, he wished to know why there was no more, no more magic done in England. It was the most commonplace question in the world. It was the question which sooner or later every child in the kingdom asks his governess or his schoolmaster or his parent. Yet the learned members of the York Society did not at all like hearing it asked, and the reason was this. They were no more able to answer it than anyone else. 
The president of the York Society, whose name was Dr. Foxcastle, turned to John Segundus and explained that the question was a wrong one. It presupposes that magicians have some sort of duty to do magic, which is clearly nonsense. You would not, I imagine, suggest that it is the task of botanists to devise more flowers or that astronomers should labor to rearrange the stars. Magicians, Mr. Segundus, study magic, which was done long ago. Why should anyone expect more? An elderly gentleman with faint blue eyes and faintly colored clothes called either Hart or Hunt, Mr. Segundus could never quite catch the name, faintly said that it did not matter in the least whether anybody expected it or not, a gentleman could not do magic. Magic was what street sorcerers pretended to do in order to rob children of their pennies. Magic, in the practical sense, was much fallen off. It had low connections. It was the bosom companion of unshaven faces, gypsies, housebreakers, the frequenter of dingy rooms with dirty yellow curtains. Oh no, a gentleman could not do magic. A gentleman might study the history of magic, nothing could be nobler, but he could not do any. The elderly gentleman looked with faint fatherly eyes at Mr. Segundus and said that he hoped Mr. Segundus had not been trying to cast spells. Mr. Segundus blushed. It presupposes that magicians have some sort of duty to do magic, which is clearly nonsense. If we were to transpose this statement into the key of biblical studies in academia, it might end up something like this. It presupposes that students of the Bible have some sort of duty to believe it and to love and worship its God, which is clearly nonsense. That's not where the chapel talk ends. That's the <laughs> While perhaps not always said in so many words, this is one of the ground rules of the secular academic study of Scripture. It comes in a variety of permutations, not all of them as unfriendly as this one suggests, and it can happen even in conservative and confessional schools too. Regardless of location, right, the idea that being a Christian might affect how you read the Bible and that studying the Bible might affect how you live as a Christian is often discouraged, ignored, or avoided. In a recent article of the New York, uh, not the New York, the New Testament scholar at Duke, Kevin Rowe, asked of the New Testament, he has an article in the title, it just says, what if it were true? What if it were true? And I'm sure that the responses range from disgust and anger to just dismissal of such a question as impolite or quite simply wrong. Covenant works hard to be different, right? And I'm so grateful for that. Uh, with my colleagues here, I study and I practice what, a kind of alchemy. This alchemy runs through and arises from the canonical texts. It's an alchemy that acts, I pray, on me and on you. And it changes us, right, not from lead into gold, but from stone to flesh, from death to life, through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So coming here, for me at least, marks a decision to do magic. If by magic, I mean seeking to experience and enact, insofar as it's appropriate for humans to enact it, the transformative power of Scripture. People who perform this kind of magic can declare with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We tend to use the language of integration of faith and learning here. 
Uh, we'd use it to describe our task, what we pursue as a faculty, what we aim to teach you. And I believe in that integration, but I find that language sometimes to be a little more reminiscent of a science experiment than of lived human life. It can obscure what C.S. Lewis so clearly observed. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. Well, it's so easy to lose track of during the mundane routines of our lives. You're sitting next to someone who was made, God willing, to live forever in glory. And so were you. And it's easy to think, well, I don't like this person very much, whether it's the person sitting next to you or maybe you yourself. I've spent a considerable amount of time with Dr. Irwin, as it happens, and I don't always like him very much. Well, the alchemy of Scripture moves us toward a glory that's outside of us. And it helps me to remember that I'm not just here to teach, I'm not just here to research, at least not in a way that brackets myself off from the text or from other people. Rather, I'm to be transformed by the renewal of my mind, and so are you. And we're to help each other in that. But what specifically is it that I'm doing as a biblical scholar in this place? What in the Bible do I study, and what do I do with that? Well, the summer before Becca and I went to England, which is where I did my doctoral work, I was a preaching intern at a church in eastern Washington state. And this is a really hospitable church, and I think it has something to do with all the vineyards out there. There's no contract in Washington state. If, I don't know if you know that. Um, <laughs> numerous families invited us over for meals. Uh, they knew I was headed over to Durham, and they would often ask me what the subject of my thesis was going to be. And uh, although it became more refined over time, I knew then that I wanted to pursue the subject of God's invisibility. Well, this raises all kinds of questions. Is God invisible? What does it mean if he's invisible? What is invisibility? What does that idea entail? If God is invisible, why do people seem to see him so often in the Old Testament? Uh, and what does this mean for the incarnation? Jesus was visible, and Jesus is supposed to be God. So what does that mean for God being invisible? So I was talking about these issues. And I mentioned that there are some ancient collections of papyri spells and incantations. And some of these spells and incantations invoke an invisible God. And some of them are designed to make gods that are invisible become visible if you speak them correctly. And I was going to use this literature with a bunch of other Greco-Roman and Hellenistic Jewish literature to, to help me read the New Testament. Well, there was a little girl there, uh, the daughter of our host, and I found out later that she got on the phone to one of her friends. Uh, both of them must have been around six. And it turned out that six-year-old girls are real sticklers for theology, I guess. So uh, watch out. And apparently her friend uh, said, you know, who's, what, who's this guy? What did they say at dinner? Um, and the little girl said, well, he's going to go to England, and he's going to work on making a potion that will make God visible. Right? <laughs> And if you would all reach under your seats, uh, there's a, you'll find a small flask. Um, well, sadly, 
I, uh, I did nothing so extraordinary as make such a potion, right? What I did do was write a long and boring book, hopefully coming out next year, about seeing God, about seeing God in John's gospel. <laughs> well, we'll see what you do if you happen to read it. Uh, and the process of writing that book changed me. So let me state plainly, finally, what it is that I'm doing here. I teach here as a biblical studies professor. Yes. But underlying that work, I believe, is a calling to be in the quest of the vision of God and to be transformed into his likeness because I see him. This part makes me cry. You're not supposed to cry with chapels. It's a, but all the faculty cry in chapels, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> because I see him and because I will see him. And that question should not be pursued alone, right? Part of my job is to invite you to join it. And to give you a bad grade if you don't, right? So, so, so let's consider briefly what the vision of God entails by tracing its arc across Scripture. So bear with me, I'm going to read a bunch of texts, short texts, but important ones. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament says in Exodus 25, you shall make a sanctuary for me, this is God speaking, that I may be seen among you. Psalm 27:4, the psalmist says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The Septuagint of Isaiah 6, 1 says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the house, the temple, was full of his glory. John, John 1, 14 says, the word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. John 2, 21 says, the temple of which he, Jesus, spoke was his body. John 6, 40, Jesus says, my Father's will is that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 12, 45, and in 14, 9, Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 20, 18, Mary Magdalene, after encountering the risen Christ, can say, I have seen the Lord. And John is most probably evoking Isaiah's vision of God here. In 2020, the risen Jesus shows the disciples his wounds, and John says that they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And then a few verses later, they can say to Thomas, who wasn't there, we have seen the Lord. And then at last, at the end of John 20, Thomas sees Jesus and declares, my Lord and my God. It's the strongest statement of belief in the whole gospel. In 1 John 3, 2, John writes, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with every increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And finally, from Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I draw three central observations from these texts. The first is that God is seen, especially in Jesus. But he will also be seen in full at the end of time. In the ancient doctrine of the beatific vision, the eschatological sight of God in heaven holds this hope out to believers. The second point is that the sight transforms those who see it. It affects what my doctoral supervisor called the metamorphosis of the beholder. Those who see God and who see God in Christ are transformed into His image. They become more and more like Him. There's another ancient doctrine called theosis that applies here, but I don't have time to get into that. The third is that the vision of God is, in a limited way, available now. The fact that we ourselves are the body of Christ on earth, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. These are both points that the Apostle Paul makes. It suggests that there are ways, limited to be sure, but still real, by which we ourselves pass on a hint of the vision of God to one another. So when I see all of you, I see God at work. I catch a glimpse of him. Irenaeus, the early church father, sums all this very well in his book Against Heresies. So bear with one more long quote. Man does not see God by his own powers, but when he pleases, he is seen by men, by whom he wills and when he wills and as he wills. For as those who see the light are within the light and partake of its brilliancy, even so those who see God are in God and receive of his splendor. But his splendor vivifies them. It makes them alive. Those, therefore, who see God do receive life. And for this reason, he, although beyond comprehension and boundless and invisible, rendered himself visible and comprehensible and within the capacity of those who believe that he might vivify those who receive and behold him through faith. For as his greatness is past finding out, so also his goodness is beyond expression, by which, having been seen, he bestows life upon those who see him. It is not possible to live apart from life, and the means of life is found in fellowship with God, but fellowship with God is to know God and to enjoy his goodness. So here again, the alchemy of transformation, study and life bound together in pursuit of Christ and in the pursuit of the sight of God himself, insofar as he's revealed himself on earth, and then by his grace and the glory of the new Jerusalem and the eschaton. We're here in this room. It's easy to be sleepy. It's easy to be bored, anxious, or distracted. I've felt all of those things at different times in this room. Uh, But what if it's true? What if the vision of God awaits What if some of it's possible now, and you can learn to see him, and I can learn to see him? That vision holds out to us the possibility of being transformed into his image, into the image of his son. If that's true, our lives are charged suddenly with meaning, with hope, and with purpose. In my best moments, I long for this. Let's seek it together. Pray with me.
Lord, we pray that you will show yourself to us, that you will make us the kind of people who are ready to seek after you and uh, to be changed. Uh, and we look to the day when we see you in glory. Be with us. Come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.